lights, camera, action. Welcome to Mixed Take, a world outspoken podcast where we discuss how the mixing of cultures and heritages in America influence film, television, and other forms of media and entertainment. Don't be surprised to hear us laughing and geeking out over the movies and shows that we cover. We hunt demogorgons, want to one day move our families to the Shire. We do. And still dream of a world led by Daenerys Targaryen. Yeah. I'm Robert Rivera, and I'm joined by my slightly cooler co-host that, to my knowledge, has never eaten raw bison liver or slept in a horse carcass, I don't think. Not yet, okay. but it's on my bucket list for no, sure. So. Hey, hey, I'm Dani Alicea, and today we are so excited to talk about Alejandro González Iñárritu. Before we get to him, we should give the why of this podcast. We didn't do that this last episode, but it's appropriate to set those expectations. You know, the, the racial landscape in America is far more complex than just black and white issues. When we think about America, it's the land of many ethnicities, but it's, it's the mixing of those ethnicities that continues to shape America in a very unique way. For more on this, actually, you can check out the World Outspoken's article, Beyond Racial Binary. So you can go to worldoutspoken.com to actually check that out. Dot com. Yeah. Yeah. And I think another reason for this podcast is as the population of this country continues to diversify, uh, you know, just globalization. It's no longer satisfying, I think, to see uh, entertainment just reflect one culture or two cultures, just be white or black. But there's Pacific Islanders, there's Southeast Asianers, there's dozens of countries in Central and South America that all have yeah. their own unique cultures. And so we want that represented. It's nice to see people of color in movies. It's yeah. nice to see them represented in the cast. But we actually want to go beyond that. We want to see filmmakers, producers. We want to see studio execs. Yes. You know, that are people of color who are who are making these movies and representing this mixed reality that we see in America. And so that's what we're highlighting, actually, this season are, are some of those creators. Yeah. So as we highlight, we're just interested in showing the the change, the diversity, and the beautiful depth and perspective that these mixed cultures bring to our screens. Yeah, definitely. With that said, that leads us to our quick takes. Quick takes, they're my fave. Yeah, definitely. Before we dive into the life and the works of Alejandro Iñárritu, Dani, what's your quick take on him? Okay. So... The United States is an immigrant nation, and, and even with the diverse backgrounds that each of us brings to this very beautiful country, you cut me, I bleed red, white, and blue. Mm -hmm. uh, we have so much okay. more in common and you know, with literally every person around the globe. And what Alejandro Iñárritu masterfully does is he invites us to grapple with questions that we're all asking, questions related to purpose, to love, redemption, and hope. So that's my quick take. Robert, what's your quick take? Oh, thanks for asking. Oh, hey. Yeah. Alejandro González Iñárritu is a nonlinear storyteller that grapples with difficult questions and leaves many of them unresolved at the end. That's what I find fascinating about his movies, and I can't wait to dive into that a little bit more. It's it's like resonance in jazz. It's like yeah. it leaves you uneasy. It leaves you like, exactly. oh, I'm not quite comfortable, but that was super dope. Loved everything about it. 100%. So, yeah, maybe Alejandro Iñárritu, he's the jazz of cinema. Yeah. Hey, -oh, we, we figured it, it act, out. That's really fitting, actually. <laughs> and so that leads us to what we call 
the pre-production and a runtime. So this is the part of the show where we explore the life and career of Alejandro Gonzalez Iñárritu. And without further ado, Robert, let's go ahead and dive in. All right. Well, this guy, he's lived kind of a fascinating life. He was born in Navate in Mexico. It's a middle-class neighborhood in Mexico City. He's the youngest of seven children. You know how Latinos do, right? Oh, hey. Populate the earth, yeah. Exactly. I mean, be fruitful and multiply over of here. <laughs> when he was young, his family lost their money. They went broke. And they went Job on it. Exactly. Lost he it said all. something really interesting though about it. In an interview, he says, But I don't remember my father shouting or crying or complaining. Then he says, I'm not like my father. I'm neurotic. <laughs> I complain all the time. Yeah. I'm a workaholic and I'm never satisfied. Mm-hmm. Like, like Hamilton, right? Yeah, totally. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So it's unclear though how this poverty affected him, um, but his failing grades got him kicked out of school. So I don't know if that played into his failing grades, but at the age of 16 or 17, I've read in a couple of different places, he ended up running away with a girl who came from a wealthy family in search of, I don't know what he was searching for. So yeah. these are actually things that I would love to pick his brain on. If he was yeah. just looking for new opportunity, was it because he came from poverty and she comes from wealth? Mm-hmm. But and it could be just excitement. When you're a teenager, yeah. your brain isn't fully developed. Yeah. <laughs> you, you know, you, you don't make the best decisions. You know how kids, they run away from home when oh, they're young yeah. and they go around the block and come back? Oh, I was one of those kids. Yeah. Well, there you go. Yeah. I Literally, I was like seven years old. You know, the orange pumpkins from you know, trick-or-treating? Of course. I packed my orange pumpkin with, you know, a pair of clothes, my favorite teddy bear, <laughs> um, my toothbrush. And I literally took my pumpkin and ran away to the basement. To the it was basement. Good times. There you go. Well, <laughs> I was like, they'll never find me. Inyaritu did something similar. As a teenager, of course, he leaves with this girl yeah. and then he comes back a week later, <laughs> realizing it right. ain't going to work out. No. Look, uh, once you realize you got bills to pay, food to buy, no. Well, maybe her family realized, oh, oh wait, we don't want to feed this guy anymore. Oh, my goodness. There you go. He attempted to go back to school, but after he failed again, he was hired on as a sailor on commercial boats. This is where he ended up traveling around the world, mm-hmm. getting to know different cultures, and it gave him kind of a hunger to know what is out there. And perhaps those stories were starting to be birthed. Yeah. There's no education quite like travel because you see people living in different ways. You experience different cultures, languages, foods, even clothes, decorations, stuff like that, like how people have their homes. And it makes your world so much bigger. Yeah. I think it renewed him. It renewed his passion for school. He wanted to Mm -hmm. learn more. Um, And at the age of 20, as a student at Ibero-Americana University. That's my favorite school in the world. He, he made a connection with a DJ, a very popular DJ in Mexico, the top one. And he actually got a gig as an on-air DJ. And of course, no surprise now, right? He rose to the top and he became mm. the most popular DJ on the most popular network. See, it's like some people 
have just crazy amounts of talent. And he's one of those people. So if you think of the JLo's of the world who can sing, they can act, they can dance. You think of Will Smith, who's a hip hop artist with ridiculous success and an actor, blockbuster hits, shows. Yeah, it's not know, fair, right? It, it's just like, oh, where's the the rest, you know, for us? us yeah, we all people. had that friend that was good at everything. Oh, Secretly hated him. Yeah, I mean, and this is Alejandro. He's like literally right. good at everything he tries. Exactly. Alejandro ended up making 800 commercials for huge companies that, that we're all very familiar with, all these different brands. Yeah. And so he went from DJ to producing commercials and... And the rest is history. Exactly. Yes. So let's get into his career a little bit. So that's his his early life and kind of what got him started. I I would say in the arts was probably that music element, which actually he brings to film. The music piece is so important to to every film that he does. Um, But to give an overview, a brief overview, um, Inyarithi was a man of many talents, as we've said. He excelled, obviously, as a radio DJ, commercial producer, television producer and he even scored six mexican films that's wild in the 80s isn't that crazy he scored six movies (laughs) i haven't written a single song since high school (laughs) let alone score an entire film (laughs) i i need to reevaluate what i'm doing oh my goodness (laughs) and yaritu is not interested in the american action hero that narrowly evades danger and winks at the camera he wants to deal with people who are broken and who are complex. Spoiler alert. Yeah. He's not directing Fast and the Furious uh, anytime soon. <laughs> he's not? Or he I, is? No, I don't think. Oh. That's what that. <laughs> <laughs> like he's totally against like <laughs> these guys narrowly escaping death and, you know, they walk out untouched, unscathed, mm-hmm. psychologically fine. Right. His movies are like the exact opposite. Literally. It's like somebody has got to have a concussion. Yeah, I you know I read somewhere movies. that he said something like he he wasn't even sure how his movies were going to be received in the United States because he likes to talk about weak characters, not strong, not these powerful like people who have everything together. Mm. So he really he he digs into the nuance of of humanity for sure. You're absolutely right. So digging into one of his first films, Amores Perros, it's all in Spanish, filmed in Mexico City. It is available on Amazon Prime, so if any of you are interested in watching it, it is very violent, so just beware. Um, you can always go to IMDb and yeah, you know, educate yourself. Towards, towards doggies. I, wow. And by the way... It's, it's a little jarring. How? It's like, how come I'm not bothered by, by people dying as much as I was by these I, It's amazing how, <laughs> how yes, how that oh hits you goodness. to the heart. And also how realistic the dogs look in this movie. Yeah. You, oh, I thought those were really good actors. They're not. <laughs> Play dead with your tongue hanging out, dripped in blood. That could very well be the case. I doubt it. Okay. But I was like, Thank wow, you. these these animals, like whatever they did in this movie, just yeah. absolutely amazing. So the synopsis quickly is the movie weaves three different stories about people and their dogs in Mexico. I know. Big giveaway. Amores perros. Right. Okay. Exactly. So Alejandro was so excited to showcase Mexico City. I've been to Mexico City probably two or three times in my life. So really? beautiful. I, I'm Mexican. I love my people. The land is beautiful. It's close to, you know, pyramids and, and just history. Great food. Taco joints aren't just taco joints. You know, you get breakfast tacos, lunch tacos, dinner tacos, dessert tacos. It's just... 
en fleet, let me tell you. So he complains that, you know, it's nearly impossible to find truly authentic food in the United States, which we would actually, you know, I would agree being in, in Mexico, there's different types. They work with blue corn, not just the yellow corn that we get here in the States. Mm. There's different meats and different meat treatments. So there's ways to like cook it in the ground or cook it in the big caldero on the open fire, all that kinds of stuff. Making so, me hungry. <laughs> Me too. So yes, yeah, so I, I see what he's talking about, authentic Mexican food. So he was excited just to to be home and to shoot this movie in his country or in our country. Oh yeah, definitely, definitely. You know, in preparation for this podcast, uh, Manuel Padilla recommended that we watch Taste the Nation, mm -hmm. which great show on mm -hmm. Hulu. On Hulu, yeah. And um, the series attempts to answer this question, or at least that's what I got out of it. What is American food? Yeah. Is that kind of... <laughs> Yeah. And and the idea is that what we think might be American really comes from from other cultures. And of course, mm -hmm. America's adopted things like Mexican food and, mm -hmm. and transformed it into its own way or or Chinese food or whatever. But what I found very interesting with Iñárritu is that he says like he's never had an authentic Mexican meal here in the United States. Whoa. Not wild to think about. That's that's crazy. And so he says he's been around, you know, all around the states and different Mexican areas. So yeah. and, just and, how interesting how food, even food, yeah, takes yeah. a whole different shape when maybe resources are limited um, or you're trying to create a product that is more palatable to a mainstream taste, mm -hmm. you know. So I think in a lot of ways that affects even film. I'll get to that in a second, but was just kind of piggybacking off of what you were saying about all the food. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I think with Alejandro, the approach with this movie and one of the highlights for me, at least, were these two themes. Uh, one was violence that kind of rose to the surface and the other was greed. In the violence section of the movie, and sorry for any spoilers for those of you who are interested in seeing this, I won't give too much away. But at one point... I mean, the movie's pretty old by now. Yeah, 2001, I think. Yeah. So 19 years. But, you know, nonetheless... 19-year spoiler. <laughs> but it's very interesting to see the kind of Cain and Abel brother versus brother dynamic with two different sets of brothers through the movie. And one of the things one of the actors says in the movie, he says, masters take after their dogs. Mm. And so he starts to basically kind of assert that the kind of dog that you have, like there's that, yeah. that animal instinct inside of all of us. And we gravitate towards those that kind of look like our inner selves. So some of us are more docile. Some are, are more, you know, gentle and cuddly and some are just uh, violent. And really the violence is, is what he, he harps on, I think in this movie. Yeah, definitely. There's brokenness, I, I would say as well with that, because each scenario deals with Brokenness. You have brothers who have a broken relationship. You have a husband who is oh man, that guy leaving his wife yeah. for for another woman. Yeah. Um, and then you have a father who has been disconnected and pretty much homeless. Mm. We won't go yeah. into all all the ways that the dogs weave the stories together. Yeah. But they weave the stories together in a very interesting way, in a very artistic way. Yeah. Yeah. I would say the other thing about this movie, particularly is the greed and lust factor, kind of what you mentioned with this husband who has a beautiful wife and he has beautiful daughters and just is not satisfied. And how I think that's just a very human plight. We can have something and just not be satisfied with it. 
wanting to know is the grass greener on the other side and my mother would say it might be greener but because there was more caca over there yeah so, exactly. so it's like really is it better you know it's great just I like because that. it's greener doesn't make it better exactly. so being you know learning contentment instead of this greed or this desire for more yeah is i think another kind of big element that he has in his film coming from a third world country you don't need more to be happy you right. need satisfaction you need contentment yeah. You know, it's interesting that this movie was well received in mm -hmm. Mexico. It was embraced. Mm -hmm. uh, he told a story that kind of hit a mainstream audience and highlighted a lot of their culture that, that maybe people don't normally see. And I think that for Alejandro, what he was trying to do here is he, he's trying to give the world a more complete view of Latinos because mm -hmm. in his mind, in America, and this is true. We, we grab a couple of Latinos and we say, oh, all, all Latinos are like this. Mm. His example was Ricky Martin because that's, that's who was hot back then. Yes. And in order to be Latino or people in their minds thought that Latinos were these butt shaking dancers. And, yeah. and he was like, no, that's not he, he does not represent all. It's not the sum of total the of all of us. E exactly. Yeah. So there was this idea mm. for him that and a fear, I think, a little bit when he came to the States that he would lose mm. his culture and maybe start to water things down to assimilate. Yeah. To yeah. You want to be accepted. Exactly. Exactly. And I think in some ways it's almost impossible to avoid that. Right. Mm -hmm. But that was very conscious on his mind. You know, what's also interesting is that Guillermo del Toro came in and helped him with this movie. He saw it ahead of time. Their buddy Alfonso Cuaron recommended the movie to Guillermo and, and so Guillermo checked it out and said you know what I like the movie but it's too long he came and helped edit that movie down and what I like about that is once again we're seeing kind of this community of of Latinos in Hollywood coming together and making sure that they all succeed they're not trying to rise up to this top spot but rather mm -hmm. they're trying to help each other out and you know what else I like about these these two? And then next week, or um, we're talking about Alfonso Cuaron, is that they actually kept their names, which are very distinctively Latino Mexican yeah. male names. In an entertainment world where people change their names all the time, we'll talk about one of them later in the season who did change his name. Mm -hmm. These got Guillermo del Toro, yeah, Alejandro González Iñárritu. It, those, they're not easy to say. People mess up their names during, you know, yeah. the Oscar acceptance speeches. It's like Leonardo DiCaprio did not say, I think he said Inyaritu, you know? Yeah. So it's like they're still like holding on to who they are. Yeah. And I was like, oh, that's awesome. Even though he's kind of shortened it as of late, he just adds oh, the, the G. G. Yeah. But that's like, I mean, still yeah, Alejandro Inyaritu. Yeah, it's like, exactly. bruh, you know who that dude is. Exactly. You familiar with the movie Babel? Yes. I had to rewatch this movie <laughs> and, it, and it blew my mind. Yeah, definitely. Again, this is a movie with random stories, right? That they seem random, I should say. Yeah. yeah. And they're all woven together at the end. The movie takes place in, in several different places. We have Morocco, mm -hmm. we have Japan, we have America, and we have Mexico. Yep. All four of those places. And once again, he masterfully brings these stories together. Yeah. So this is, I would say, a, a story that juxtaposes privilege against poverty and I think asserts that in the end we all experience pain, tragedy, and loss. If you've got money, if you don't, if you've got food, if you don't, if you've got family, if you don't, 
there's tragedy coming your way at some point or loss that's coming your way at some point. Here's what's interesting is that when he tells his stories, there is no person that's perfect. Yeah. So when I'm reading the Old Testament, and this is one of the reasons I really love reading the Old Testament, Mm -hmm. is that we don't get a lot of commentary on some of these characters. They do things, we see the consequences, Mm -hmm. and we see, or sometimes we don't see the consequences. Yeah. I brought this up and, and... I like some of the pushback you gave that Mm -hmm. King David was a man who he had an affair, right, with this woman. And then to cover up the affair, he killed her husband, right? And he made it look like... shocker. Yeah. He made it look like it was an accident (gasps) or like it was in war. And I said, but we don't look at King David as a villain. Hmm. But you told me... Yeah. Uriah definitely looked at King David as a villain. Exactly. From his perspective. Yes, he was definitely. And then David's son Solomon is another one that kind of baffles us. There's so Mm -hmm. many stories in the Old Testament that don't seek to answer every single question. They're not trying to package these people uh, neatly for us. And I feel like Inyaritu does the same exact thing. Like he gives us these characters. Mm -hmm. And at times we're like, oh, these people are so horrible. And other times you're really feeling bad for them you're or i should say compassionate like you're feeling deep compassion for them and their mistakes and realizing that hey you and i are sometimes we're like one one step away from making some tragic mistake in our life absolutely one single decision it's like you know you set up your dominoes all in a row and you click one domino and it affects the the entire rest on the table and that's essentially what this movie suggests is there are certain decisions that we'll make in our life that then affect so many other things. And there's no way of knowing what that one decision is going to be. So take heed. The Bible says, take heed you who stand lest you fall is like, man, guard your heart, guard your steps, because you just don't know what the one decision is going to yield in the end. And again, we're all going to experience pain and loss. It's just a matter of when and, you know, what decision it is that may bring on this loss. Yeah. And the the movie deals with so many different complex things. Yeah. Um, Just to kind of walk through the movie, you have a Japanese man. He seems very wealthy. He went out hunting Mm -hmm. in Morocco. He gave this high-powered rifle to a local in Morocco. Mm -hmm. That guy ended up selling the rifle to another man who had two sons. That man then turned around and gave the rifle to his sons, didn't really give a whole lot of instruction, just said, shoot the jackals. Keep Mm -hmm. the jackals away from the flock. Yeah. But the kids wanted to test, is this gun as powerful as advertised? Mm -hmm. And so they shoot a bus that is very far away. And at first it looks like nothing happens. Then the bus stops and you realize, Cape Lanchette got shot. <laughs> and, uh, oh my goodness. Then you have an, it's, it turns into these oh, wild wow. scenarios where now they're in the middle of the desert in Morocco. Morocco. They don't know how to get back. Boy. There's no hospital nearby. They're mm-hmm. freaking out. And their kids are back home in California mm-hmm. with the, the Mexican nanny. nanny. Yeah. Like she has these kids and, she has this dilemma. Her son is getting married yeah. in Mexico, mm-hmm. but she has nowhere to take the kids. Mm-hmm. So she calls an audible and takes the kids to Mexico. But Crosses we find out the later. Border yeah. Without papers, without parent parental approval. Yes. With all that right. Yeah. 
and just how all the dominoes fall and how each one of these scenarios kind of leads to a tragedy. And I didn't even mention the Japanese businessman's daughter who's deaf and she's looking for love and approval, right? I mean, she's, Mm -hmm. I get the sense that she's very lonely in this world. Yeah. Yeah. I really appreciated Alejandro shedding light on so many different types of characters in the world that often get marginalized or like Guillermo does, vilified. So we have Mexicans. At one point, the two children from the American family are in the car and they ask the two Mexicans that their nanny and the nanny's nephew, and they say, is it Mexico dangerous? And the nephew looks back and he says, yeah, because there's Mexicans there. Yeah. And it's like, you know, all Mexicans end up being vilified. Yep. It's like, why put everybody in one, in one basket, one, one fell swoop. You make a judgment on a whole country of people, people in the Middle East after Kate Blanchett gets shot. Brad Pitt is trying to argue for the tourist bus to stay where they are because they're trying to get medical attention and all the tourists want to head back because the air conditioner is not on and they want to be comfortable. And they're scared, I think, too. Absolutely. But but yeah, but they're not recognizing this is a very (laughs) serious situation. Exactly. Yes. One of the guys says, man, there was a a slaughter in Egypt of 30 Germans who X, Y, Z. Yeah. And it's like, oh, man, he just puts all these people into the category of terrorists but in the film what he's learned on on, in the news exactly it it starts to pervade their thoughts and opinions about this whole demographic and earlier in the film a couple of townspeople were talking and they're like there's no terrorists here exactly but little do the tourists know you know they have their own preconceived notions and and ideas they're like yeah that's exactly what they would say yeah and then the third of course is the deaf culture which yeah. many, if you don't have a deaf friend, relative, coworker, classmate, you don't know much about the deaf world. So at one point, the deaf girl, there's some police officers who wanted to get her attention and they tapped her on the shoulder. If you know anything about deaf people, it's the worst thing you could do because mm. it's very startling. What you're supposed to do is wave in front of their face to get their attention and wow. then they look your way. So I was like, oh, wow. He even went so far as to show kind of yeah. the ignorance that people have of how you interact with with a deaf person and then their perception. So they go to a nightclub. Alejandro has, you know, the scenes where there's music and then it'll strip the music down and just show you what she she sees. Yeah. And so it's, you know, the deaf versus hearing that juxtaposition, which was so very cool. I was like, wow, he's giving us insight into all these different marginalized, judged people groups, which I thought was very cool. The attention to detail is is incredible. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. He gives us tons and it feels so satisfying to watch the end. Like you said, there's some dissonance to it and you're like, exactly. oh, but what happens to this family and that right. family? And what about this girl? What does her, the rest of her journey look like? Yeah. We're left with just where we are in life. Exactly. Tough stuff. And we don't know necessarily what's next, but we as believers would say we cling to the cross and he knows Exactly. So as long as I can trust in the one that knows, I'm Preach. good. <laughs> yeah. Babel was a wonderful, wonderful story. Yeah. Birdman's a, yeah. A, a, an interesting Whew, one. Ooh, Birdman. Holy moly. The floating opening scene was crazy. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, basically, it's Michael Keaton, right? He's best known for his role as Batman in real life. Yes. He's kind of playing almost that kind of role in this movie where... Yeah. In this movie, he played a guy named 
Birdman in in Hollywood, right? He became yeah. famous off of this guy mm-hmm. playing this character, uh, Birdman, and he walked away from money, right? There was a, a sequel, maybe a, was it like a third or fourth movie or something that he walked away from and said, no, I want to pursue other things in my career. Mm-hmm. And so where we find him now is he's trying to- Make it on Broadway. Make it on Broadway, exactly. Yeah. In this film, you have kind of a washed up actor trying to make it in in a different style of art form, acting, but it's a completely different world. Theater, yeah. the, you know, they deal with the snobby critics, they Harsh. deal with the snobby actors, yep. they deal with the well-connected individuals, they all yep. know each other and have these deep, long relationships, yep. and he's the outsider who's coming in with Hollywood fame, which these theater snobs judged. And he's at a point in his life where he's questioning, okay, now that I've kind of come to the end of my money, I've now, you know, missed out maybe even on this Birdman thing, which is really a part of my identity, but I don't want it to be the whole of my identity, but it kind of is. And it doesn't really matter anymore. I've got this daughter who's telling it to me like it is and telling me I'm washed up. I'm old. I am irrelevant. I don't exist anymore. Man. What happens that, you know, what? it's literally a midlife crisis for this guy. Yeah. And Inyaritu plays with our head the whole time because yes. we see Birdman emerge from behind him, spread his wings and fly behind <laughs> yeah. him. And you're like, wait, what's going on? Yeah. Um, or at other times you see Michael Keaton's character. It looks like he's using superpowers um, to move things with his mind or whatever. Only to be shown in the next scene that that's not actually happening. Mm-hmm. There's a scene where it looks like he's flying and then you learn. He took a cab. Scene, he took the cab. <laughs> yeah. So he's so playing funny. with your mind the whole time. Like, okay, what we see is really just in Michael Keaton's head, the whole yeah. movie. Although the intro scene and the last scene, there's no resolution. There's no resolution exactly. to the floating and there's no resolution to the flying. Oh again. my goodness. Yeah. That is that's a killer. So I don't want to give away that very last scene of the yeah. movie. Yeah. But but yes. Yeah, there's some magic to the movie and to the character of Birdman. Yeah. That leaves you wondering, was yeah. he really Birdman? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Can he really do these amazing things? But we yeah. do see some of those key themes, right, of a guy who has disappointment that follows him all of his life, Mm -hmm. regret that follows him. Yeah, It's like Birdman is always there to remind him of Mm. the fame that he threw away. He's questioning himself now because, as you said, he's an outsider trying to get in and trying to become, he's trying to become famous. He's trying to become successful on Broadway and he is just really struggling. Yeah, Alejandro, in an interview about this movie, he was saying he very much identifies with Birdman. So, you know, he's like, I'm turning 50. I'm starting (laughs) to wonder my own relevance to this world, to Hollywood, to, you know, family, friends. And so he's like, this Birdman alter ego that tells you, oh, you're the best and you're awesome. And then 20 minutes later tells you you're a failure, you're nothing, you're forgotten. Nobody wants to see you or hear you. These two very real, almost bipolar voices exist in all of us. You know, sometimes we come to our own things and we're very confident in them or we question everything about them. So yeah. it's a very human, I think, experience when we try at something whether we fail or succeed, 
along the way, there's self-talk. And whether it's positive or negative, it's that Birdman syndrome. There's good stuff or there's bad stuff. Yeah. Oh, Birdman. <sighs> Which leads us really to times. his latest movie. The quintessential. The one that people have seen. Actually, the one that's most Hollywood friendly as well. I feel like that ending has it has the most satisfying. Maybe not satisfying Hollywood friendly, ending. but had Hollywood appeal. Okay. So like because it's so violent and you know that sure. kind of thing. I don't I don't know that friendly as a word, but sure. it definitely has the most acclaim. Yeah. I think. Definitely. Yeah. Okay. Definitely. So the Revenant. Yeah. Starring Tell Leonardo DiCaprio, uh, who's known for his roles in Titanic, mm-hmm. The Aviator, Inception. And Tom Hardy, who's known for uh, his roles in Black Hawk Down, Mad Max, The Dark Knight Rises, Dunkirk. Uh, this is set in the 1820s, a story about a frontiersman on a fur trading expedition yeah. uh, who fights for survival after being mauled by a bear and left for dead by members of his own hunting party. That is the most epic scene of all time. Of all time, yes. <laughs> that might, yes, that, that might top the charts. Getting mauled by that bear. I mean, you know what's interesting? He does these long, these long shots in, in his movies. Yes, and that's one of them where yes, he, it just stays right there on Leonardo's Leonardo. character. Yes, Mr. Glass. What's his first name? Um, I forget off uh, the top Hugh? of my head. Hugh Glass. Was yeah, that right? I okay, so. I wanted to say that. Hugh Glass is there. He he has to just take it from this bear. This bear's clawing his back, Oof. stomping him, stepping on his head, grabbing him by the side, and just kind of. <sighs> jerking its head around and yes. just doing all crazy stuff and you're just sitting there watching it hoping that he's gonna get away from this bear <laughs> and the scene lingers and lingers oh my gosh they had it was like a boxing match but the boxing match from hell <laughs> <laughs> it was like oh no you know who's gonna win but it's i mean i guess in the end the the well i don't want to give it away y'all need to see the yeah. revenant if you haven't seen the revenant i i, I realized that that part is is quite gruesome, but it does show the resilience. I, I think it needed to show the gruesomeness for us to understand the resilience of Mr. Glass. Yeah. And what's really interesting about how Alejandro films his movies, he actually films them in chronological order. So even though it might be, you know, it save money to, you know, film this scene and this scene that both have a lot of snow mm, at the same time and in yeah. the same location or something like that, he will actually come back and shoot those scenes. Interesting. And his thinking is this, that he grows along with the characters and the movie. And so The Revenant was actually, the ending was changed as they continued shooting because they felt as a cast, they got to know these characters better and had a better sense of the decisions that they would make later on and that kind of thing, which I thought was just such a really cool art form to bring to Hollywood because again, you know, shooting out of order is something that's very typical and again is budget friendly. But for Alejandro Niaritu, he's like, I want to stay true to these characters and tell the best story possible and he said, for me, chronological order is the way to go. That's that's really interesting. Yeah. Wow. Well, of course, his the themes of this movie, again, are, are very heartfelt, deep, things that we can relate to. He added a character uh, in the real life of Hugh Glass. Hugh Glass uh, didn't have a son. Interesting. But in this movie, he added a son that was half Pawnee Indian. Hmm. 
and half white. Mm-hmm. What's interesting, though, to me is that there's a quote in the movie, right, that he tells his son. He says, I told you to be invisible, son. They don't hear your voice. They just see the color of your face. You have to listen. Mm-hmm. And as horrible as that sounds, you know, that reminds me of, that reminds me of nowadays, right, mm-hmm. teaching young black men what to do when you're pulled over by a police officer, how yeah. you have to act in that situation because you will not be treated fairly in most situations. Mm-hmm. The same was Mm. true for this young boy Mm. where you have to act differently because you're not going to be treated the same way. Mm. And even though he's half white, he was only seen as Indian and treated poorly because of it. Mm -hmm. I was so grateful for that storyline in this movie because it goes back to the opening scenes of this show and our discussion of why this podcast, why it's not just a black and white conversation There's Native Americans that still live in this country, that still live on reservations, that are still marginalized and villainized. There are brown people in this country, marginalized and vilified. There are Middle Easterners. There are Asians. There are, you name it, they're here. And so I, I, I really appreciated that Alejandro kind of like in Babel where we saw Definitely. the Moroccan, we saw yes. the, the deaf girl, and we saw the Mexican plight, that in this movie we see the plight of the American, Native American, um, and the tragedies that they have had, a, a glimpse into the tragedies that Natives have had to face in this country. Wow. It's like we just need to do episodes of just the, these movies on their own. Yeah. There's so much to talk about. I wish we could... <sighs> Wish we could spend more time in in these movies, but um, absolutely because we didn't even touch on Tom Hardy's character of Fitzgerald and exactly. the element that he brings to the movie, and the fact that Leonardo DiCaprio actually asked Tom Hardy to be in this film. Wow, because they worked together on Inception. Inception, yeah. yeah, and so he was like, "Oh man, we need to bring this because he is he's great." Oh, he plays. I love me some Tom Hardy. Whew. You want to see Tom Hardy? Just watch a, a Christopher Nolan movie. Literally, he's like in a bunch of them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> totally. I, I, Bane is probably, you know, Batman's arch nemesis is probably my favorite Tom Hardy role. He plays it to perfection. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, again, just the, the themes of, of racism and injustice and, and violence, again, we see emerge in Alejandro's films. Yeah. Well, have you ever watched a movie and wondered what it would have looked like in the hands of another director? Or maybe you wonder how your favorite director would have directed any given film. Well, that leads us to our next segment called Deleted Scenes. Donnie, is there a movie that you wish that Alejandro Iñárritu had directed? Okay, I would say yes. So if you've seen Bright in Netflix starring uh, Will Smith, a.k.a. The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Yep. It's a movie where there's elves and orcs, and I'm a huge Lord of the Rings fan, just like I know you are. Yeah. So any world that has elves and orcs, I was like, all day, son. Yeah. So when I saw the previews for Bright, I was like, yo, this is going to be fire. And as I was watching the movie, there were some great moments, like the elves and their superpowers, um, the struggle that orcs had with humans and the racism, if you will, yeah. that they experienced. I was like, wow, these are some very relevant... Racism toward orcs, not good. <laughs> I was so mad. I was like, look, right. let the orc brother do his thing. He's bad. But it was 
fascinating to me, you know, these, these really cool characters. And yeah. I'm like, oh, they're going to develop these people and it's going to be awesome. And then like 30 minutes later, the movie was over. And I was, <laughs> and I was so disappointed. I was like, you didn't let me get to know anybody. I didn't feel connected to any of these characters. There was so much storytelling that was literally missing from yeah. the entire movie. So I think if Alejandro Nyaritu shot that movie or reshoots it or even does a series yeah. so that we can, you know, further really interesting, yeah. get to know. Yeah, because I was like, a movie may, may not do this world justice. It might be very Lord of the Rings-ish where you have these different groups of people and you kind of have to take your time getting to know some of the background, some of the lore, some of the whys of the tension between humans and orcs and the, the magicness that the elves bring and all that stuff. So I was like, maybe we need more time with it. But I would love to see. Yeah, it's a great yeah. concept. It's basically what if uh, the magic never died out and yes. they just they're just woven into our culture nowadays. So exactly, yeah, you can live next door to an elf or an orc. Who yeah. knows? Absolutely. So bright would be would be for me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How about you? Any deleted scene that you would like to see Alejandro oh, shoot? Definitely. Where's our movie on the Trail of Tears? Oh, I, I really yes. want to see something powerful about the Trail of Tears. Donnie, you and I have both spent time um, in Native American communities. Yes. On the and res, we, yes. Exactly. And that's a very underrepresented population. He's already done a little bit with Native Americans and the Revenant. I would just love for him to take that as a backdrop and tell a story within that. The Trail of Tears. If anybody listening to this podcast knows Alejandro Iñárritu, <laughs> please send this to him. <laughs> he needs to make this movie. Robert, that is literally a tears. genius, yeah. genius. Because you're right. Where is that story? I mean, my heart is broken. Just the fact that it doesn't exist. It doesn't. It's literally the stuff that we sweep under the rug in this country. It's like, oh, we're not going to tell that story. That's just too tragic or that's yeah. just too... And he doesn't shy away from that story. He show doesn't. Those kinds of stories. So, yeah. We love you, Alejandro. (laughs) All right. Finally, we come to the part of our show that we call post-production. Dun, dun, dun. What is post-production? This is where we go beyond the film and give our final takes on Alejandro González Iñárritu. We'll either give you our personal takeaway or how he has influenced the entertainment world. So, Robert, why don't you kick us off in post-production? Okay. My personal takeaway is that we learn more about the nuance of the human condition in Iñárritu's films than we do in Christian entertainment. Mm -hmm. This is where I would love to see Christian filmmakers kind of take a cue from Iñárritu and and do films that wrestle with some of these hard issues without having to resolve it. Like, I would be interested in seeing... Somebody like Iñárritu, a Christian director, take the book of Jonah with that kind of grit and Mm -hmm. leave it unresolved at the ending for us to kind of wrestle with some of those themes. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the other thing with that is he talks, there's so much failure. I think Iñárritu experienced failure in his own life and it seeps into his movies. And I think that's what makes him so relatable to me and helps me realize that we do fail. And there is hope, and maybe the, his movies don't shine that hope all the time, mm-hmm. but I think as a believer, that's where I kind of fill in the gap and say, yeah. 
I understand that there's failure, but there's, but there's also hope. Mm-hmm. How about you? I would say um, if I have, a, have to give a final take, it would probably be the perspective piece. Alejandro, he, he gives a perspective from so many different angles. So, uh, you know, going back to uh, the Moroccan families, going to the Mexican families, going to the American families and the, the deaf family in, in Japan and the um, fur trappers in the 1800s and the natives or the First Nations people, because I think they, they filmed both in Canada um, and the States or, or in Argentina, something like that. Um, but, you know, I, the, the, the perspective that he brings and the awareness that he raises that everybody in every walk of life experiences some tragedy, some pain and some loss, but also gives testimony to the resilience of humans and the fortitude that we have and the, the perseverance that, that we can exhibit is pretty moving and pretty powerful. Yeah. So that's my final take on Alejandro. I I just feel like his movies are so weighty. Yeah. (laughs) You know what I mean? Big time, big time. Uh, well, unfortunately, that brings us to the end credits. Mwah, mwah, mwah. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Mixed Take. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us five stars on iTunes. Also, head over to worldoutspoken.com. It's a site preparing the Mestizo Church for cultural change, where you'll find information of consulting services, thought-provoking blog posts, and other great podcasts such as The Feature, Questions from the Few, from the Pew, I should say, and the only Mestizo podcast, the show for the mixed people of the mixed church. Also, check out some of the new content online. Hey, yes. Yeah. Uh, there's an article by Corinne Rodriguez called Our Black Bodies Cursed Dominican Racial Identity and the Life of Oscar Wow. Shout out to Kerwin Rodriguez. And special thanks to our producer, Michelle Perez. Also thanks to Emmanuel Padilla and the World Outspoken crew. We hope you join us again as we continue to dive into the world of culture-influencing content creators. Until next time. Cut. It's a wrap.